Nathan said to David, you are the man. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you as we do each week to be here with us this morning and we trust that you are here among us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm going to begin the sermon this morning by telling you one of my kids' favorite stories. So I hope they're listening. They love this story because it involves me getting in trouble. Uh, So sometimes after they've gotten in trouble, they ask me to tell this story. I guess misery does love company. So anyone who knows me well knows that I have an unhealthy, uh, both physically and mentally, love of Oreos. I've always had this love. I've, I've eaten a legitimately horrifying number of Oreos in my life. My mother used to keep one of those classic glass old school cookie jars in the kitchen, and it was always full of Oreos. And I got really good at silently lifting the lid off the cookie jar, taking a couple of Oreos out, and then, and of course this is the really challenging part, silently putting the glass lid back on the glass cookie jar. See, a lot of kids get lazy once they've got the cookies in their hands, and they forget to be careful putting the lid back on, and it's that telltale clink of glass on glass that gets you in trouble. But I was an expert. And normally my plan was simple and easy to execute. My parents would be sitting in the living room reading as they were what seems like 23 and a half hours a day. And I would just walk through the living room into the kitchen, sneak some Oreos out of the jar, and head down to the basement where I would enjoy the spoils of my thievery. But on one particular occasion, I was in the basement already, and for some reason I decided that I wanted to enjoy some Oreo cookies in my room, which was upstairs, which meant that I would somehow have to get the cookies past my parents in the living room and up the stairs to my room. Luckily, I was wearing a baseball hat. Now, you can probably guess my master plan. You're probably disgusted already. I lined the inside of my hat with Oreos, 10 or 12 of them, I think, placed it carefully on my head, and walked through the living room. Now, what happened next is a little bit cloudy in my memory. Uh, Perhaps my mom and dad started a conversation with me, or perhaps in order to prove that I had nothing to hide, I started a conversation with them. Uh, But whatever happened, I ended up in a conversation with my parents. No big deal. I played it totally cool. Remember, I'm an expert. But then... The conversation went on long enough, and one thing led to another, and I totally forgot that I was wearing a hat full of Oreos. And eventually, I got an itch on my head, took my hat off to scratch it, and, well, you can imagine the scene. Oreos came tumbling out, my parents' eyes got as big as saucers, and there I stood, totally busted. We all have moments like this. You know the feeling. You have, for one reason or another, some big and some small felt 
totally busted, just like I did. The experience, that sinking feeling in your, in your stomach, that cold sweat on the back of your neck, probably came streaming back to you as I told you my Oreo story. And that Oreo story came streaming back to me as I read our Second Samuel reading this morning when David gets totally busted by Nathan. Now our reading from the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 12 is actually a slice out of the middle of what is a pretty incredible story. Now most of you will be familiar with parts of it, but it bears a quick retelling because it's really the whole story, not just the slice we got today, that sheds light on the bad news of the human condition and the good news about a forgiving God. So, the part of the story that everybody knows is that David is king, and one day as he's looking out his window, he sees a beautiful woman on a neighboring rooftop. This is Bathsheba. He falls in love with her, or at least in lust with her, and he brings her into his house, sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. Unfortunately for David, she's married. She's married to a loyal soldier in his army, a man named Uriah. And so David has a problem. And in order to solve his problem, he hatches a plan. He calls Uriah home from the front, hoping that Uriah will do the natural thing that soldiers do when they come home, that Uriah will sleep with his wife and then believe that the child she has is his. Uriah, though, is this super honorable man. And when he gets back, he refuses to go in and sleep with his wife because he doesn't want to do something like that when all of his men are back sleeping alone on the battlefield away from their families. So he won't go in. Stymied, but still wanting Bathsheba for himself, David hatches another plan. And he sends Uriah back to the army, back to the front with a sealed letter to his commanding officer. Send Uriah to the place where the fighting is the most violent, the letter says, and then pull back from him so that he is killed. And the commander does this, and David's plan works. Uriah is killed. And this is where our reading picks up the story. David and Bathsheba have become husband and wife, and they have a son. And then one day, the prophet Nathan comes to the palace, and he has a little story to tell David. You heard it read this morning. There were two men in a certain city, he says, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he has an incredibly close relationship, if you noticed. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children and used to eat of his meager fare, drink from his cup, and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. That's a special lamb. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb, that one incredibly special lamb, and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. 
Now, before we get to King David's reaction to this story, I want to take a pause for a second and sort of put the David and Nathan story to the side for just a moment and turn our attention briefly to what we read this morning from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's the beginning of the fourth chapter, and Paul has something powerful to say. He's a prisoner, and he says, I therefore, prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I beg you, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is Paul saying to the Ephesians, Basically the same thing that Nathan's story is trying to say to David, right? I beg you, live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Be humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with each other. Maintain unity. Nathan puts it in parable form, in in story form, but he's basically saying the same thing. Live a life worthy. Don't take things that aren't yours, Don't lust after another man's wife. Care for the poor. Don't take advantage of them. And David knows what he's supposed to do. David knows what the right thing is. He knows right from wrong. Listen to how he reacts to Nathan's story. He's just heard this supposedly fictional story about a rich man taking the one thing that a poor man loves the most— And scripture says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And we're just like David. We know right from wrong. You'd never, for instance, to choose an example completely at random, send a lover's spouse off to get killed so you could have them for yourself. None of us would do that. You'd never fill your hat with Oreos and try to sneak them past your parents. That's just ridiculous. You'd never fail to be humble or gentle or patient or unified. Oh, wait. We all fail to do those things all the time. This is why St. Paul is begging the Ephesians, to live a life worthy of the calling to which they have been called, they're not doing it. You don't have to beg someone to do something that they're doing. He's begging them, live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. These are the same Ephesians about whom Paul writes in the first chapter of this same letter, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. These two things are true at the same time. He says, I've heard of your great faith and how loving you are to everyone. I beg you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. They know right from wrong. They're just not doing it. They are faithful Christians and loving, and yet he begs them to live a life worthy of their call. They are sinners, and yet they are redeemed. 
They know right from wrong. They're just having trouble doing it. So after David hears Nathan's story and says, that man deserves to die, Nathan says, that story was about you. You are the man. David is totally busted. See, David knows what the right thing is. He is righteously angry at Nathan's story. But despite knowing what the right thing is, when David was living out Nathan's story, he didn't actually do the right thing. He sent Uriah off to be killed, and Bathsheba is now living in his house. This is the human predicament that St. Paul elucidates so powerfully in Romans 7 when he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This, my brothers and sisters, is us. We know right from wrong. We just have trouble doing it. We hear Nathan's story and we think, like David, that's a bad guy. We hear David's story and we think, that's a bad guy. And we hear Paul's admonition, his begging, and we think, yes, he's right. I will redouble my efforts. I will be humble and gentle and patient and work for unity. But it seems like for so many of us, a day comes when we're standing in front of our parents with Oreos all over the floor. We're standing in front of a spouse who cannot believe what we've done. We're standing in front of a boss who's going to have to fire us. We're standing in front of a judge who has just said, guilty. We're standing exposed, wondering how in the heck it ever got to this point. God has sent us a Nathan. Our sin has come to light and we're totally busted. This is the bad news. We don't do the good we want and the evil we hate. This we keep on doing. But then, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Incredible. Six words that change everything. I have sinned against the Lord. This is confession. And it comes after being totally busted. It's the turning point. Someone says, you are the man. And we say, yes, I am the man. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, it's the last sentence of our reading, but it's not the end of the story. In fact, it's not even the end of that verse. I'm talking about 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. You can look it up later. Our reading actually ends after half of the verse. 
but listen to the whole thing. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. How precious those words must have sounded to David in that moment and how precious they are to us. These are the words you need to hear when you've been caught out, when you've been totally busted, when you've done the thing you thought you'd never do or failed to do the thing you promised yourself you would do. When someone is standing in front of you, pointing their finger at you, and there's no excuse that will get you out of it. When you hear, you are the man, and it's absolutely true. And all you can do is confess. I have sinned against the Lord. The good news of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that confession always leads to forgiveness every single time. Confession turns bad news to good news. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Why? Because Jesus has died for you. This is the gospel. The gospel is good news for sinners. It's good news for the totally busted. So if I may be so bold, let me be your St. Paul this morning and your Nathan. Please, I beg you, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But if you've come here this morning totally busted, or if you find yourself totally busted in the future, if you feel like St. Paul, I don't understand my own actions I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. If you're fearing that you're failing to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, remember the good news. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the perfect offering for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The Lord has put away your sins in Jesus' name. You shall not die. Amen.